From Socialist Alternative, this is Socialism Today, a podcast about socialist strategy and analysis. We are Emily MacArthur and Ellen Anderson. And today's episode is called 100 Years Ago, Russians Shook the World. Does it still matter? If you haven't heard of Socialist Alternative before, Socialist Alternative is an activist organization. We build movements in our workplaces, schools, communities to fight injustice, exploitation, racism, sexism, and homophobia. We believe oppression stems from the capitalist system, a system that seeks to enrich and empower a tiny global elite. We put forward analysis and strategy to uproot the system and build socialism internationally. Why do socialists still talk about the Russian Revolution? I think that's a really relevant question. It's the only example we can point to in history of a successful working class movement where the mass of society overthrew oppression and the profit system to implement a massive bringing into public ownership the wealth that we all create. Yeah, and I think especially as someone kind of new to Socialist Alternative, previous to joining, a lot of what I had mostly heard about the Russian Revolution was sort of the Red Scare and the Cold War and hiding under desks. But I think it's also really important to talk about how a bunch of awesome activists and working class people came together to win giant gains. So yeah, specifically, not just why is this still interesting, but how is it relevant today? Especially when we look at the overthrow of a czar during uh, World War I. Um, You know, basically you've got this egomaniac in the midst of delusions of world domination, (coughs) Trump. And in response to that, it's not as though working class people just sort of cower and allow that to happen, but they organize Soviets, these like working class democratic tools, and they come together and discuss like how to run society. Yeah, and we're also going to be talking about, you know, How do we talk about Stalinism? How do we address the fact that this revolution turned out pretty bad for a lot of people? Socialists, we can't avoid that, and we really need to be able to talk about that efficiently and effectively. Robert Becker. He's a member of the Socialist Party in England, which is a sister organization of Socialist Alternative. Socialist Alternative is part of an international organization called the CWI, or the Committee for a Workers International. An international is a space where activists and workers, and specifically socialists, can come together and talk about their experiences and debate strategies because we know that the struggle of the working class is a shared experience. And we're going to talk about the Russian Revolution 100 years later. Um, We're going to kind of go a bit chronologically and talk about sort of some of the major points. And so I think 
maybe it makes sense, even though we were going to talk about 1905 later, to sort of start with the February Revolution, because that's sort of this like very exciting moment of a kickoff. Do you kind of want to talk about what happened in the February Revolution and what role the working class played in that? I think the February Revolution, the beginning of the Russian Revolution of 1917, is very important today because many of the things which happened in that revolution are similar to things that we've witnessed in revolutions right up to this day. Even if you look at the Arab Spring of a few years ago, you could see that in the revolutions in Egypt and Tunisia, there were some things which were similar to what, to what happened in the February Revolution. And the February Revolution really marked, obviously, the collapse of the overthrow of the old aristocratic uh, regime in, uh, in Russia. It marked, if you like, the mass of the Russian uh, people, the workers, the peasants, and other parts of the uh, society, moving into action to change their lives. And in so doing, they brought down the old order. They ended the old feudal aristocracy, which had governed uh, Russia for uh, centuries, and they opened up a new period. And that was a tremendous step forward. It, was, it produced, at the time, one of the freest countries in the world, especially because it was taking place at a time of world war. The First World War was raging. Millions were being killed in, uh, in Europe. And in this period, the Russian Revolution offered a beacon of hope to many who were trying to find a way out of this horrible situation which had uh, developed in, uh, in Europe. And the Russian Revolution offered that and was immensely attractive from the very uh, beginning. But while the February Revolution gained a lot, it gained political freedom, it ended censorship, it allowed people to freely express themselves, to organise themselves into labour unions, to organise themselves into political parties, to organise themselves in all sorts of ways. At the same time, the February Revolution was really just the beginning. It was the opening act. And why it's interesting to look at it today is the question of not just how February occurred, which shows that any dictatorship can eventually be overthrown, but it also asks the question of what happens next. Can we maybe set the stage for those who are listening of, you know, who are the major players? You mentioned aristocratic class, um, and then, you know, I mentioned the working class, and sort of how are those characters related to each other, and who else is sort of on the scene for this action? Well, Russia at the time was had, a, if you like, a complex character. On the one hand, it was a centuries-old empire, which was ruled as an absolutely uh, dictatorship by the, uh, feudal, uh, by the feudal elite. A dictatorship which repressed not just the Russian people as a whole, but also many nationalities in, which were at that time inside the Russian uh, empire. But while it was an old feudal regime, in the years before the Russian Revolution, it had witnessed in parts of the country a certain economic development. And what was happening is you had a mixture of an old-style feudal country, a peasantry oppressed by landlords, by the old aristocracy. And at the same time, in parts of Russia, you had some of the most modern industries which had come in from the outside, often been outside investors going in, setting up some, some 
of the most modern industry's very large workplaces. So you had this combined character which was developing in Russia of a very old political system, an oppressed pe peasantry, and at the same time a small but quite modern economy empl employing large numbers of uh, workers. And this gave a peculiar character to Russia. At the same time, because of the First World War, many of the peasants in uh, Russia had been drafted into the uh, Russian army and were fighting in the army. And what had happened was that peasants who had previously been living in relatively isolated villages had been drafted into the army and, in one sense, brought together, organised in the army, instead of being just individuals looking after their pieces of land or working on big estates. They were actually now in the army and organised. And this meant that in the Russian Revolution, you had a number of different forces on the ground. The working class the peasantry, but also the rank-and-file soldiers in the very large military. There were the popular forces. On the other hand, you did have the old aristocracy, but they were largely pushed to out quite rapidly at the beginning of the re revolution. But then also you had the representatives of a more modern, so to speak, capitalist class, who wanted to seize hold of the opportunity of the revolution to establish a country more in line with the other more modern capitalist countries in Western Europe and the US. But that set the scene for a new conflict to develop during 1917 between the different classes. Great. So many Marxist historians refer to the 1905 revolution as, you know, the dress rehearsal for the 1917 revolution. Can you sort of go over maybe some of the key lessons that the working class learned from 1905 that really helped drive the success of what happened in 1917? The 1905 revolution also, in a way, was a product of war. In that situation, the Russian Empire had just been defeated by Japan in the Far East, in the Pacific. And that shock of the defeat of the Russian Empire by Japan helped provoke the revolution of 1905. And that was really a revolution in which different experiences took place, which helped prepare, as you said, for what happened in 1917. And the most ex important experiences were, I think, for a section of the uh, population, the question that they had to rely on their own forces workers and the peasants had to rely on their own forces to achieve anything. Secondly, not to trust the regime, because at one stage in 1905, the uh, monarchy offered concessions. They offered concessions in order to buy time. Then when the revolution cooled down, they then took away the recessions and went back to repression. And it symbolised, for instance, you know, there's a word which is commonly used today, pogrom, which means anti-Semitic attacks on the Jewish people. And that originally is a Russian word. And that really came to prominence because as part of the uh, crushing of the 1905 revolution, the Tsarist regime, that's the monarchy, used anti-Semitism to divert people's attention and also to carry through pogroms, vicious anti-Semitic attacks which resulted in the death of hundreds of uh, people as part of their consolidation or reconsolidation of the old regime. And from that experience, a section of the population learnt the lesson there can be no compromise with the old regime. The third lesson, really, which was learnt was that working people can organise themselves. 
And that's what they began to do in 1905, setting up their own bodies, their own councils, using the Russian word Soviet, their own councils, which could bring working people together to discuss the issues which they faced, to discuss what should be done, but also which began in a very early way, if you like, to begin to discuss not just what what should happen, but also begin to implement change themselves. Bodies which would be both discussion forums, but also forums which would actually do things after discussion. Now, these had a very mixed uh, record in 1905, but they established a tradition which meant that at the beginning of the 1917 revolution, very rapidly, the Soviets' councils were established, not just in the cities, but also very rapidly in the army as well, among soldiers setting up their own councils, and it began also to spread in the countryside as well. And that, if you like, began laying the basis for an alternative type of society. And that was also something which was learned from 1905. So you mentioned the backdrop of a war in 1905 and also the backdrop of, you know, 20 million people dying in World War I as the lead up to these explosive movements. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about how does such an explosive movement as a revolution develop? Can activist organizations just work really hard and will it into being or, yeah, sort of go into that a bit more? Any movement like that, any big change in society is rooted in what is happening in society and how people's moods are changing. You can sometimes feel in a society that there's an explosive mood, a desire for change. And the question is, how is that, uh, how is that reflected? To a certain extent, you saw that here in, in the US with the election last year, in the sense that there was a rejection of the old elite. It explains not just the response which Bernie Sanders got for his campaign, but also even Trump's victory in the Republican uh, Party was a rejection of the old leadership. And sometimes you have this feeling of building up in society, a change, the change has got to be made, something's going to happen. And the question is, what can spark it off? What can um, begin to set into motion such a change? In the case of February 1917, it was a demonstration of the women workers in Petrograd. Their demonstration, their strike, that sparked off a wider movement. But in one sense, it took the activity of the women workers. They set an example. They set the lead. But it was in the context of conditions when people were feeling, we've had enough. Change has got to come. We can't go on like this. So you can't artificially create that broad feeling for change. But if that feeling is there, then the question is that a clear call, a clear call to action can get a response. And that's what happened in February 1917. So the role of activists is very important in, if you like, setting something into motion. But the activists themselves don't create the circumstances, the background, which make such a call for action popular. So... Socialist Alternative and the CWI, in a broader way, uh, model themselves after the Bolshevik Party, uh, which were just one of the many political parties, as you sort of mentioned, working people were organizing them into, themselves into at the time. Can you sort of talk about how the Bolsheviks approached the provisional government, which was brought about in the wake of the fall of the Tsar in the February Revolution? This question is actually one of the most important ones because it's still something which comes up today. 
you had, immediately after the February Revolution, no real government anymore in Russia. I don't mean society collapsed, but the old authority of the government had disappeared. And the question was, who would form the government? As I said before, the capitalist class wanted to try and establish a country modelled on the capitalist countries of uh, Western Europe, of the US, etc. But their problem was they didn't have the mass support to do it. So what they tried to rely upon is leaning upon the leaders of the popular movements which were developing to involve them in government and in that sense, if you like, begin to establish the sort of capitalist government which they wanted. And they did this with all sorts of slogans of saying, for instance, we've overthrown the monarchy, the monarchy's gone, now we should all come together and safeguard the uh, Russian, safeguard the revolution, all unify together, and then we'll be able to ensure that the monarchy doesn't come back. But what in fact they were doing was using those sort of slogans, which appeared to be reasonable, to hide the fact that they were trying to establish a new capitalist uh, government. And the point is, from the point of view of working people, they carried through the revolution, yes, to win democracy, yes, to win freedom, but also to use democratic rights, also to use their freedom to achieve other goals, to improve their lives, not just to have freedom to say what they felt, but also to begin to materially change and improve their lives. And that was bringing them into conflict with the uh, capitalists. And that began to undermine, from the beginning, the provisional government, this joint government which was set up. But in the case of Russia in 1917, there was another factor as well. As mentioned before, Russia was involved in the uh, First World War. The Russian capitalists wanted to ensure that Russia meant stayed in the First World War. They were fighting in the First World War for definite aims. The uh, first foreign minister in the provisional government of the Russian Revolution after 1917, he said later that his objective was that Russia should take over Constantinople. You think about it, if you look at the map, they wanted to take over what is now Turkey. That was their war aim. They wanted control of Constantinople. He said that quite openly. And so from their point of view, they wanted to stay in the war. They wanted to see what they could gain out of staying in the First World War. And this came into conflict with the Russian workers and the peasants and especially the soldiers who didn't see what they were in the war for. They didn't see what they weren't fighting to win Constantinople from the, uh, from the Turks. And one of their leading slogans was for peace. Exactly. That's what, and that's also undermined the provisional government. We had a number of provisional governments in, in Russia during 1917, and the first one collapsed precisely on the question of the war. So all these real issues of workers wanting to have improvement in their lives, the peasants also wanting to have their own land, because much of the land in Russia was still owned by aristocratic landlords. The peasants wanted control of the land. The demand, as you said, for peace... All of these things, which were summed up, if you like, in the Bolshevik slogan of bread, peace and land, all of these real issues led to conflict between the mass of the population and the capitalists, and that's what began to undermine the provisional government. 
You know, I think this question, as you said, is still really relevant today of how does a socialist party or specifically a revolutionary party approach elections? The Bolsheviks did play a part in the provisional government up to a point. Can you sort of talk about how and when a revolutionary party should make that call of whether to participate in a electoral system or not? There was a continuing debate about this. What do you do? And it was, there was a continual debate during the Russian Revolution, what to do, what is the best road forward. Because in Russia, like in all revolutions, there is a threat of counter-revolution. There is a threat of the old regime coming back. And this threat was utilised as one of the arguments for, for the supporters of the revolution coming together in the provisional government in order to... Um, as they put it, consolidate the revolution. But, as I said before, the basis on which the provisional government wanted to consolidate the uh, revolution was on the basis of maintaining and improving, from their point of view, the, cap the functioning of the, of the capitalist system, which ran directly into, uh, into conflict with the interests of the mass of the population. And within the Bolsheviks' party, as you mentioned, there was a debate over what should be done. There were some who said we should support the provisional government insofar as it consolidates the gains of the revolution. Others were saying we shouldn't support the uh, provisional government because if you support the provisional government, that means that you end up supporting the government's attempts to, if you like, more firmly consolidate the capitalist system when we're standing for the overthrow, for the ending of the capitalist uh, system. And this was not just a debate inside the Bolshevik party at one stage, but also really was the whole debate of 1917. And for many people, originally, there was a certain support for the provisional government in the euphoria of uh, revolution. We've seen that in other revolutions uh, over the years. For instance, in Egypt, when the old dictator Mubarak was overthrown. There was tremendous support for the Egyptian army, which was seen as being a force which helped the overthrow of Mubarak. But within 18 months, the Egyptian army staged a new coup and installed a new uh, dictator, the present uh, president of Egypt, Sisi. And it demonstrated that experience in Egypt of the dangers of giving... Um, any sort of support to these sort of governments which come up. Now, that doesn't mean that if and when the forces of counter-revolution rear their head, when they try to strike back, you don't fight against them. And this happened a bit later in Russia in 1917, in August 1917, when there was an attempted military coup against the provisional government. A military coup which, if it had succeeded would have established a new dictatorship and at that time the Bolsheviks fought against the military coup and in one sense were fighting next to supporters of the provisional government jointly they were fighting against the military coup but while they were doing that they didn't give political support to the provisional government so that was an important difference an important question because what the Bolsheviks were arguing for was the question of that if the Russian working people wanted to achieve their aims, they needed to, if you like, complete the revolution. They needed 
what became seen as a second revolution against capitalism itself. And this was, if you like, what the Bolsheviks argued for through the course of 1917. Initially, they were a minority. They didn't have majority support for that idea. But the experience of 1917, combined with the Bolsheviks arguing for a program of the need for what became known as the Second Revolution, that won majority support, and that gave rise later to the October Revolution of, uh, of that year. And how would you see th- those lessons related today to our work with, you know, Shama Sawant or even support of a candidate like Bernie Sanders? Are they related or how do those lessons connect and flow from each other? I think they're related in general ways. Obviously, it's we're not at the present time uh, faced with a, uh, if you like, a, a mass movement on the streets in, in the US at the present time. But there are lessons First of all, I think I would say that the lesson is having a clear program and strategy that you know what you're aiming for. Secondly, is to have the ability to have a dialogue with as many people as possible to convince them of the support for that, uh, for that program. But that's not just an abstract dialogue. It's linked to people's own experience. It's linked to their own experience. So that people in Russia in 1917 who may have supported the provisional government at one time then came to oppose it because they'd been disappointed, because they'd been opposed, because they'd come into opposition uh, to it. And that's, if you like, a second lesson which, uh, which can be learned from uh, 19, uh, 1917. And on the basis of winning that support, then to have a clear strategy about how to move forward, how, if you like, not just to to mobilize that support to win a real change in society. Now, in doing that, it's not an abstract thing. You you have your own program. At the same time, in working with people, you may be struggling on different issues with people who you don't have exact agreement with, you don't have full agreement with. But through that joint struggle and through the experience of that, combined with that dialogue, that's how you can win ideas. Now, obviously, in a revolution, all of that happens far, far quicker than in normal times. And in Russia, because it was a revolution in a situation of world war, it happened even faster. It happened in a matter of months. In other countries, it's not exactly, it's not exactly uh, the same. You know, you don't have those exact uh, conditions. But those, I think, are some of the key lessons, so to speak, that one can learn from the point of view of how does a minority win majority support? What uh, would you say is the decisive moment that sort of marks the turn towards um, another mass movement in October, right, where there's this second revolution that you've kind of been pointing towards and uh, what actually unfolds that marks that? I think there were a number of different points. One, as I said before, the, the disappointment with the results, the concrete results of February, when working people were realizing that they weren't getting the fundamental changes in their lives which they wanted, along with the personal freedom, the movement in the countryside of the peasants trying to take over the land from the landlords, and which was bringing them into conflict with the provisional government. That was somewhat of like an organic movement as well, right? Yes. And also the continuation of the war, because each provisional government attempted to continue Russia's participation in the First World War. 
In the middle of 1917, they launched a big military offensive against the, their German and Austrian opponents, which ended in disaster, which further embittered many soldiers who felt they asked to risk their lives for something which wasn't in their interests. Plus, the attempted counter-coup, the attempted military coup in, uh, in, the, in August 1917, which I previously mentioned, that also showed the danger of reaction. So all these things came together to make a qualitative change that the mass of the population felt we can't go on in the old way, we need to do something to uh, consolidate the gains of the revolution of February, which means making another revolution. And that was, if you like, the turning point, the change in people's attitudes, which uh, then uh, prepared the way for uh, the October Revolution. But also what you needed in October was a political force to say, this is the mood for change, how are we going to implement it? What concrete steps are we going to make to actually make that come about? Materially, you pointed towards, in February, women workers walking out, going on strike, and sort of triggering this strike wave nationwide and storming heaven, as it were, of you know pushing out the bureaucratic aristocrats. And can we make sort of the same material... What's the moment in October that you can like point to of what's the shift? What makes this the second revolution? I don't think there's such a pivotal point. I think it's what happened was that the change in opinion, the shift in opinion, reached a critical mass around the time October. And then was the issue of could that be implemented? Could that come to fruition? Because we've seen in other revolutions broad masses drawing similar conclusions, but there hasn't been a force to say, okay, this is what we do now. And that's the difference. There was a force in Russia which was able to say, this is what we do now, and it was widely discussed because it was, it'd been a political theme of 1917, do we need a second revolution or not? The fact that large numbers became convinced of the, sec of the need for a second revolution, that, if you like, prepared the ground but if they hadn't taken the opportunity in October 1917, or around that time, if that opportunity had been lost, then you would have seen the revolution going to retreat and the possible uh, victory of reaction, which we've seen in other countries as well, in, in their own experiences. So we talked a lot about sort of what was happening within the provisional government um, and what the, those discussions looked like. Maybe this would be a good point to sort of point towards, well, there's also another set of discussions happening, right, within the Soviets and the executive committee of the Soviets. And, you know, that those were actually separate conversations and somewhat competing and talking about what was happening in the Soviets and sort of what was the dynamic happening between both the provisional government that was supposed to be running the day-to-day -day workings and decisions of society, but then also the Soviets, which sort of themselves were determining what was happening in the factories amongst the workers and the people, and so in their own way were also determining what was happening in society. There wasn't a straight line in the development of the Soviets, of the, the workers' councils, workers', peasants' and soldiers' councils of 1917. They didn't just develop in a straight line. As I mentioned before, they very rapidly developed immediately after February. And the leaders of the Soviets at that stage didn't want a second revolution. They didn't want it. And increasingly, they came under pressure. Now, this reflected in their relations with the provisional governments because 
there were a number of provisional governments. In the first one, the Soviets were not really represented. Soviet leadership were not really represented in the provisional government. Each time there was a new provisional government, the Soviet leaders were more involved in it because they were under pressure from below to do something. And they were under, under pressure from below not only to do something, but also the capitalist class, increasingly feeling isolated, needed, if you like, the, the then Soviet leaders to be involved in the government as a way of holding back the movement. Because they knew that the original Soviet leaders did not want a second revolution, so from the point of view of capitalism, they were safe, and they were using them in the government as a way of holding the masses back. And this meant that there was a debate, not in the Soviets, not just about the uh, question of the uh, provisional government itself, but also what the Soviet leaders should actually do. And when they went into government, when the first Soviet leaders started joining the government, then it became an issue of what should they do when they're in government? What policies should they carry out? And because they were not prepared to break with the old system, increasingly they became discredited. And that actually meant that in the middle of 1917, the Soviets went into decline. The participation in them, in general, went into decline because people got frustrated. Then, as I mentioned before, you had this counter-revolutionary attempt in August 1917, and there was a mass movement, a new mass movement, to defeat the revolution. And that gave rise to a revitalization of the Soviets. Not just a revitalization, but also a change in their political composition. And so perhaps in answer to a question you asked before, maybe that in a way was a pivotal point. Because that, the defeat of the counter-revolution in August, set in train the revitalization of Soviets, the change of leadership in the Soviets, the fact that the Bolsheviks started to win the leadership of the Soviets, and that, if you like, from August onwards, prepared the way for the October Revolution. There's also this interesting dynamic where members of the Bolshevik Party, the Menshevik Party, the SR Party are being elected to the, the provisional government, but they're also playing a role within the Soviets, the same organizations making those arguments. Can you sort of talk about what role, you know, we talked about how the Bolsheviks oriented themselves to the provisional government, but what role were they playing within the Soviets? Well, there was a continual debate among the Bolsheviks as what they should do. Unlike the other parties, as you mentioned, the other parties all gradually started participating in the provisional government. And there was a minority in the Bolsheviks who sometimes leaned in that direction towards uh, participation, but they were a minority because the majority were looking to the question of how to build support, how to win support for the idea of a second uh, revolution. Uh, but they were very flexible how they uh, worked because, for instance, when the Soviets went into that period of decline after, say, June, in the middle of 1917, the Bolsheviks were thinking, well, maybe what were called the factory shop committees, which were really trade union committees or uh, shop steward committees inside the workplaces, maybe they would be more important than the Soviets because they were closer to uh, working uh, people. But, as I said before, there was a revival of the Soviets after August uh, 1917. And then there was the debate, 
what should the Bolsheviks uh, do? Should they prepare, should actually carry out a counter-revolution, or should they simply participate in the various sort of parliamentary structures which were being put up in Russia? Now, these parliamentary structures had not been elected. There was something called a pre-parliament, which wasn't an elected body, but it tried to pretend it was a parliament. And there was a debate in the Bolsheviks, should we participate in that? And in fact, the majority of the leadership participated in it. Other Bolshevik leaders like Lenin and Trotsky were against participating in it because they felt it was a mistake, because it was giving some kind of democratic legitimacy to a unelected uh, government, and not just an unelected government, a government which wouldn't act in the interests of working uh, people. So you had all these sort of uh, debates going on inside the uh, Bolsheviks about what they should do. And it then came down to a question of should the Bolsheviks, on the basis of winning a majority inside the Soviets nationally, then say that the Soviets should themselves constitute the government, that they represent the mass of the uh, population. And on that basis, they should form the government and they should overthrow the provisional government, which hadn't even been elected by anybody, had been almost uh, self-proclaimed in one uh, sense. That also created a debate inside the uh, Bolshevik party with a section saying we shouldn't do that. We should wait, we should perhaps try and work with other socialist parties. But those other parties themselves were divided. And what's sometimes uh, forgotten is that when the Bolsheviks actually carried through the second revolution, they weren't on their own. There was the Bolshevik party, but also one of the other big parties, a party called the Socialist, uh, Socialist Revolutionary Party, had actually split. And the left wing of that party, who call themselves the left social socialist revolutionaries, they participated with the Bolsheviks in carrying through the October Revolution, which represented the broadness of the support for that second revolution. So, yeah, I feel like the decisive question here then, and maybe like what is even the meat of what people want to talk about is, what does it actually look like to overthrow capitalism, right? We talked about how in the February Revolution, there was sort of this undercurrent of a emergent capitalist class trying to make it into a bourgeois revolution supported on the backs of working people. But what is this, what is gained for working people and peasants uh, in the overthrow of capitalism? And how does that decisive break actually look? How it looks depends on the, the country and depends on the concrete uh, situation. The most important first thing is that the majority of the population, working people, for the first time, they begin to govern themselves. They begin to govern themselves. They begin to take control of the running of society. They're not passive bystanders who vote every two, four, or five years, or or whatever it is, and then have no say of what happens in between. They begin not to be at the mercy of the big corporations which decide what is actually happening. They begin to plan what is happening to their lives, to their their work, to society as a whole. That's the biggest change, if you like, the beginning of that mass involvement. And then on that basis begins a transformation of life. Now, how it proceeds in the different countries depends, on the, as I said, on the concrete situation. Immediately you would take steps to try and alleviate the worst uh, poverty, the worst situations which people uh, face. Immediately try and make 
improvements in people's lives. You can also begin to try and change the whole uh, way in which society runs, which takes a bit longer. Well, we can also point to not just this general trend, but the specific of what we're talking about compared to what the provisional government was doing of trying to continue this war for domination of, you know, Constantinople or all these sort of side motives. Like what instead did a government run by the people concretely mean for the workers and peasants of Russia? Well, immediately they said they don't support the war. And they said, we will stop uh, fighting and we want to have a... uh, We want to negotiate an end to the fighting. That's the first thing they said. They said to the peasants, seize the land. You take the land. The government will back you taking the land off the feudal landowners. We will back you doing that. They began immediately to start improvements as far as they could in wages and living standards for working people. At the same time, they began to implement a series of laws in order to change uh, people's uh, lives. And in many cases, they were instituting changes which they knew would not be fully realized, but they were trying to set an example. They were making decrees. They were trying to set an example. This is the direction we want to move in. This is the way in which society should be run, whether it be on the question of women, family, education, religion, workplaces. On all these things, they passed new law, they passed things, and the idea was to set in motion, to set an example of changing society, to give a vision of where they wanted uh, to go. And that's why many of the measures they introduced were very progressive, and they weren't immediately able to be fully implemented, but the idea was to excite people with a vision of a different society, you know, how it could be uh, organised. And this was especially true in the first year or so of the Russian uh, Revolution.
Now the problem was, with the subsequent development of the revolution, was that, first of all, the First World War didn't immediately come to an end, because the, uh, the German and the Austrians, who the Russia, Russia was fighting, their leaderships didn't immediately end the war. But more importantly, was that the other world powers, including for here the, the US, started to intervene militarily against the uh, Russian Revolution. So you had 21 different armies which invaded Russia after the Russian uh, Revolution. Armies from all around the world, including US forces, British forces, French forces, Japanese forces, they all moved in to try, on the one hand, to defeat the revolution. And if they couldn't do that, to try and grab bits of what had been the Russian Empire for themselves. This fueled a civil war which lasted for a number of years and which really, in many senses, helped bleed the country dry. And so that many of the reforms which were initially announced or proclaimed, many of the changes which were initially announced and proclaimed immediately after 1917, unfortunately, weren't fully implemented in that sort of, uh, in that sort of crisis uh, situation. But it was more an idea of giving a vision of which way they wanted to move. And there's an important aspect of that which we haven't mentioned up until now, is that from the beginning, the Bolsheviks looked internationally for support. And um, one of the first things which happened in October 1917, when the Second Revolution was carried out, was that the Soviets made an appeal to working people in France, Germany and Britain for them, uh, an appeal of solidarity to them, and also an appeal for them to move to end the world war, to end the war which was uh, taking uh, place. And they had a very conscious attempt to try and appeal to uh, workers in other countries to support the Russian Revolution. And that being quite distinct from appealing to their bourgeois governments to please exactly. stop the war, but the actual working exactly. people of those countries. And they, they did it in different forms. For instance, uh, Lenin, the leader of the Russian Revolution, wrote an open letter which was distributed as a flyer to the American troops which invaded Russia, appealing for them to support the Russian Revolution and against the intervention which was sponsored by the uh, US government then. In part two, we're going to go in a lot more to sort of the results of what happened of the, the white army invasion and sort of the uh, progression of the Russian Revolution. But I did want to just sort of highlight something that you said that I thought was really interesting of, you know, passing legislation to really inspire people, to get people excited. And in a certain way, you know, that that moves people into the struggle of sadly another war because they're defending the revolution but that that is a distinctly different war than participating in a, a, a war for conquering in world war one um but i just sort of want to juxtapose that idea against sort of what we see a lot of governments doing today which is very uninspiring right where we always hear oh it's a time when we all have to collectively tighten our belts and where we all like massive cuts backs and like that these are just things that we um can't offer to working people anymore um and just to sort of counterpose that like very uninspiring vision to this idea of like the a workers government putting forward things that are meant to like excite and inspire and drive people to better their conditions and their lives well that's very true and you see it now here in the u.s what does trump try and say in order to inspire the american people he says america first an appeal to nationalism an appeal just uh, 
I mean, it covers his uh, policy, covers up his policy, but that's all that he can appeal. He can't appeal anything uh, better. Admittedly, he says, make America great again, but it's not uh, going to happen. at socialistalternative.org and subscribe to our newspaper. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook for up-to-date socialist analysis. And also consider supporting the podcast by going to socialistalternative.org and clicking the donate link. We don't have any corporate sponsors. We don't have any ads. We depend on the support of working class people to do the work that we do. Also, make sure to listen to part two of this episode. And if the ideas in this podcast inspire you, consider joining Socialist Alternative. Thank you.